0: Now let's turn again in our Bibles to the book of Colossians, and um, this in a certain sense is cleanup from last week. Um, I thought that there were simply things that needed to be dealt with in a little bit more depth than we could from this text last week and we're going to be focusing upon verses 13 through 15 in Colossians 2. But we'll pick up our reading in verse 8. Our focus is on verses 13 through 15. We'll begin reading at verse 8. But first let's bow before the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we humble ourselves under your mighty hand and contrast ourselves with your greatness and We offer to you our profound gratitude that you have given to us your word which is inerrant, without error, in the whole and in the part. And we rely upon your word as your people. We live under the authority of your word until Jesus comes again. And so we pray that we will see ourselves to be a pilgrim people and that our very manna and sustenance is the written and proclaimed word. We ask, therefore, that we, your people, will hear this word with eagerness and joy, receive it into the very depths of our souls, and that you would transform our lives and conform us to the image of your own dear Son, the Lord Jesus. And for those among us today who do not know Christ, as they hear the gospel proclaimed, we pray for the Spirit's work within their hearts, that there would be those here today who walked in lost and walk out saved. And we pray these things in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. Colossians chapter 2, beginning with verse 8. This is the word of God. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily... And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now we pick it up here today. And you Now, I don't know if it's true, but I read somewhere that in the Bank of England years ago, when they canceled a debt, they nailed a nail through the debt. Again, I don't know if that's true, but I'm sure you will agree that in our relationship with God, that's our great need, isn't it? That the debt that we owe, that what we could not pay, that infinite load of guilt, that the debt would have the nail pierced right through it. Done. Paid. You don't owe it anymore. And that's what Jesus did for us, and that's what Paul is dwelling on in the text before us. Now in order to get there and to see also how he disarmed principalities and powers through the cross... I think that the first thing we need to do is go back to verse 13 and to remember our condition outside of Christ. Paul then tells us, and this is the first thing, that we were dead in our sins. Look at verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. We were dead. We were dead in our transgressions and the uncircumcision of our flesh. This is what we were. This is our past condition. By nature, we were dead in our transgressions. The world, spiritually speaking, is a vast graveyard. We are born into this world dead in our transgressions, incapable of raising ourselves to life, We are a part according to chapter 1 verse 13, by nature apart from Christ we are a part of the domain of darkness. And when Paul speaks here of the uncircumcision of the flesh, this shows the complete corruption and ruin of our nature. It's not merely physical when he speaks of uncircumcised, this refers also to the heart, the flesh, that is to say the sinful nature in this present evil age. There is no promise of the deliverance from evil that does not involve the renewal of our hearts by grace, what Paul calls in Romans 2, the inward circumcision of the heart. Has your heart been cleansed? Is there the inward circumcision of the heart? That's our great need by nature. Now what he says here about being dead in our transgressions is consistent with what the Bible everywhere teaches, the New Testament teaches, and certainly with what Paul teaches everywhere in his epistles. You will recall in Ephesians chapter 2 he begins by saying, "...and you were dead in the trespasses, trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air." so he speaks in Ephesians 2 just as he does here in Colossians of spiritual death. And in Ephesians 2 he speaks of spiritual death. That is we are insensible to spiritual things, that our understanding is dead, the will is bound, we are powerless, we were conformed to vile practices, an ungodly walk, enslavement to Satan, to sin, and we were condemned under the wrath of God. Now I would say that's hopeless and helpless, wouldn't you? Scripture never flatters human nature outside of Christ. It just doesn't do it. And so in sum, what the Bible teaches and what Paul is saying to us here is that we are dead in sin, dead to spiritual things, dead to God's glory, totally depraved, totally unable to recover ourselves from our lost condition. Every faculty of our nature is under the dominion of sin. We are fallen. In short, God said to Adam in the day you eat thereof you will surely die. Physical death is the result of Adam's first sin and spiritual death is the result of Adam's sin so that our wills are enslaved according to the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 2.14 Paul says the natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. The natural man is the man outside of Christ he cannot know the things of the Spirit of God because they are spiritually discerned and this is true of every one of us apart from the intervening grace of God. But that's not all that Paul says, thank God. And we move along and we see the glorious gospel unfolded. Secondly, God has made us alive in Christ. Now look at verse 13 again. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him having forgiven us our trespasses. God made us alive in union with Christ. We died with Him when He died. We rose with Him when He rose in these great historical events. Of redemptive history, but also in the application of those things to our hearts and lives, we have now received spiritual resurrection. So that we go to Ephesians chapter 2 again, and the Apostle Paul, you can see again the twin epistles, can you not? How these things relate. And the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2 having spoken of our depravity says but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus And so we have been raised together. We sing it, don't we? Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I rose the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? That's what Paul is saying here in this passage. That's the idea. That's the theme. So that with the Heidelberg Catechism we can use these words. I have already, now listen, this is wonderful. I have already now experienced in my heart the beginning of eternal joy. Already. Because we are raised in Christ Jesus. Now Paul uses the language of resurrection. You know John uses the language of regeneration. You must be born again The wind blows where it wills and you hear the sound thereof but you cannot tell from where it has come or where it is going so as everyone who is born of God you need a new nature. That's the point. So whether you're using the language of resurrection or new birth, the point is, given our depravity, given our total inability, given our Adamic natures, given our bondage of will, God must do something. He must open the heart. God must regenerate. God must give life. God must raise us from spiritual death. God must give us eyes to see. God must give us ears to hear or else we will not respond to the command to believe and repent. But this is exactly Paul's point. You Colossians, you were dead, but now you're alive. God has given you that spiritual life. God has done that for us, people of God. He's done that for us. And so, because He has raised us to life and we are now in Christ, the third thing that we see in the text is that God has forgiven our sins. And he says that again in verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. And I love that word all. (laughs) Not some of my trespasses, not a few of my trespasses, but all of my trespasses have been forgiven in the cross full free forgiveness. You remember in Luke chapter 7 when the two debtors had nothing to pay, the Bible says He frankly forgave both of them. And then in Mark chapter 2 when we have the lowering down of the paralytic and the question is who can forgive sins but God? That's the point. Jesus is God become man and He can forgive our sins. You know I remember thinking of how terrible sin is and how it influences every faculty of our nature completely and utterly. I remember my mother telling me a few times that she played Lady Macbeth in her senior high school play. And a couple of times she acted out a part of the scene for me. What a dame of the theater my mother would have made. I mean she was good, but I'm glad she was just mom I'm glad she focused (laughs) there but you remember when Macbeth slew the king when a guest in his castle and his hand was red with blood Lady Macbeth tells him to go and wash his hand will all great Neptune's ocean wash this blood clean from my hand he asked And Lady Macbeth her conscience stricken due to her complicity walks the castle at night that's the part my mother was playing Walks the castle at night because of the blood on her hands. By the way, Vicky played that part too in her senior play. I didn't marry her because of that. I found that out <laughs> later. So here, Lady Macbeth's hands, she, she sees her bloody hands. Yet here's a spot, out, damned spot, out I say. Here's the smell of blood still. All the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. And I remember being sort of delightfully frightened when my mother acted this crazy woman out for me. But you know, Shakespeare was dead on. He was absolutely right. There's so much of Christ in Shakespeare, you know. So much of the Bible, so much of original sin and the need for redemption as in much literature, and he was right on. My hands are bloody with... Guilt. I nailed him to the cross, didn't I? Didn't my sins put him there? Haven't I sinned against God and against my fellow man? How could I ever be forgiven? And the answer of the Bible is the instrument is the cross. What can remove the blood of my guilt, the shed blood of Christ, the necessity of atonement? He went there as my substitute and there he paid the debt. Hebrews 9.22, without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sins. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. For my cleansing, this I see, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Lady Macbeth needed the gospel. You and I need the gospel. So what's the instrument? The instrument is the cross. And that leads us to the fourth thing we see. God has blotted out the handwriting that was against us. Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt. You see, He's forgiven our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. So He blotted out the handwriting that was against us. The handwriting means debt. F.F. F. Bruce puts it this way a mountain of bankruptcy. Now, that's a picture, isn't it? A mountain of bankruptcy. That's what I owed. Handwriting means a record of debt. The term was used most often of promissory notes and bonds in the first century AD. It's only used here in the New Testament. The word means certificate of indebtedness, bond. The record of debt, Paul says in this verse 14, was against us. Against us. That means the law of God was against me, that I was guilty. I was under condemnation and wrath. For the Jew, of course, this took the form of the Ten Commandments and the Pentateuch. For the Gentile, the law of God written on the conscience. But CFD Mole, I think, summarizes this well when he says, What Paul is saying is this I owe God obedience to his will. I owe God obedience to his will. Signed mankind. Signed David. Put your name there. How is this law against us? Well, the law is good. It reflects the holiness of God. The law demands perfect, personal, perpetual obedience. The law cannot be slacked. The law is spiritual. That's what Jesus is teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. You see, it's not. It's not simply not to have committed externally adultery or externally hated your neighbor. It's to do that in the heart, which every one of us has done. That shows the spirituality of the law and it shows, as Machen put it, that a low view of the law, which was the Pharisees' problem, a low view of the law makes a man a legalist in religion. A high view of the law makes a man a seeker after Grace. So when the Holy Spirit shows to us our indebtedness and demonstrates to us the perfection of the law which we cannot attain and how it comes against us to condemn us, then the Spirit of God uses that in order to draw us out of self unto Him, out of sin, out of darkness, into light in the kingdom of God's own dear Son. The law was against us because of our sins, but the glory of it is in verse 14, verse 14. That it says, he has taken it out of the way. He has erased it. Exilepho, the word means to wipe away. It can mean to wipe out. It can mean to erase. Uh, for example, an absidarian, You have a, a wax tablet on which you're learning your, your alphabet. <clears throat> so you write a few and then you wipe them out. You write and wipe them out. He has wipe clean the slate for us. It can mean remove, obliterate, blot out. And then he says literally translated he's carried it out of the midst which means I can't even see it anymore. It's not there anymore. He's removed it. He took the IOU out of sight and he nailed it to the cross. Proselao means to nail fast. He nailed it fast to the cross, in nailing himself to the cross. And what do I mean by that? I give my life, no man takes it from me. In giving his life on the cross and permitting himself to be nailed upon the cross, he nailed my IOU to the cross. Now this of course is what Paul is teaching in the book of Galatians. Turn to Galatians 3, keep your finger here. Just to remember these verses that I will read just quickly. Galatians 3, let's read verses 10 through 13. Now here arguing against the Judaizers that want to add to the work of the cross. Paul says in Galatians 3.10, By becoming a curse for us, by taking that IOU for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And no wonder then in chapter 6 of Galatians in verse 14 the Apostle Paul says toward the end of this book, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world." Substitutionary atonement is what is taught here. My Savior was nailed to the cross, and my sin was nailed there in Christ. In His substitution, my IOU was nailed to the cross. And so I say it again, and we just sang it. Wasn't it glorious? My sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord praise the Lord oh my soul. Well we're not done. He goes on this is the fifth thing. He says in the cross Jesus did something else he has triumphed over his enemies so God has triumphed over his enemies in the cross of Christ. Now as Jesus neared the cross The powers of darkness were at their worst, their most oppressive. On Golgotha, he fights the decisive battle. And all the powers of the evil one converged around the crucified Savior. And Paul in this verse, look at verse 15 of Colossians 2. says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The Greek participle that he uses here means to take off or to strip off just as one might strip off an article of clothing. And J.B. Lightfoot says in his great commentary, the powers of evil which had clung like a nessus robe. Now he's, he's referring to the legend of Hercules and the poisoned robe uh, by the blood of the centaur Nessus that he wore. The powers of evil which had clung like a nessus robe about Christ's humanity were torn off and cast aside forever. Now is the prince of this world cast out, says Jesus, as he goes to the cross. And so there on that day, our Savior crushed Satan's head, fulfilling the first promise of the gospel in Genesis 3.15. And notice how it puts it. He disarmed the rulers. He put them to open shame. The word that is used here means to expose to disgrace. It can even mean to mock he mocked the powers of evil and he led them in triumph as a defeated enemy which of course would have brought to mind as i pointed out last week you remember the reference to appian in his roman history the roman triumph the triumph of the cross as seen in view of the general that defeated his enemy when the roman senate awarded him a triumph And he was honored through the streets of Rome and all the booty and all of the captives were shown off to the city and the legions were there marching and the people cheered and the captives were seen as conquered enemies chained to the chariot of the great victorious general. And Jesus Christ is that greater than any general could have ever been who did what no human general could ever have done He has chained to his chariot wheel all of the principalities and powers that were against us and that were opposed to him. It shows their utter helplessness and that Satan is a defeated enemy. Now I'm going to read something to you and I especially want the young folk, young people to listen up and children. When I was a boy, my pastor preached through the book of Colossians and he kept bringing this book into the pulpit and reading out of it was J.B. Lightfoot's great, marvelous, deep, incredible commentary on the book of Colossians. 19th century Archbishop of, uh, he was Bishop of Durham, New Testament scholar. Um, Actually, I was in Durham's library not long ago. And I was wondering, I wonder where Bishop Lightfoot's papers are. And uh, later read, that they had just been discovered I had walked right by the cabinet where they were and they're being published in three volumes and I have the first I had no idea when I was a boy thirteen probably when my pastor read from J.B. Lightfoot I had no idea what scholarship was behind his simple paraphrases but I want to read the paraphrase of this section that we have read this morning from J.B. Lightfoot's great commentary. (laughs) Yes, you, you Gentiles, who before were dead, when ye walked in your transgressions and in the uncircumcision of your unchastened, carnal, heathen heart, even you did God quicken into life together with Christ, then and there, freely forgiving us, forgiving all of us, Jews and Gentiles alike, all our transgressions, then and there, canceling the bond which stood valid against us, for it bore our own signature, the bond which engaged us to fulfill all the law of ordinances, which was our stern, pitiless tyrant. I, this very bond, hath Christ put out of sight forever, nailing it to his cross And rending it with his body and killing it in his death, taking upon him our human nature, he stripped off and cast aside all the powers of evil which clung to it like a poisonous garment. As a mighty conqueror, he displayed these, his fallen enemies, to an astonished world, leading them in triumph on his cross. Now it's not too far removed from our text to mention to you that the Apostle Paul uses this metaphor in another place. In 2 Corinthians 2.14, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing To one, the fragrance of death to death. To the other, the fragrance of life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? So Paul says, you see, there's Christ, like the victorious general. He's moving through the city. And you see, of course, the principalities and the powers that are there and that are chained to his chariot. But if you'll look more carefully, you'll see someone else. You will see that I'm there. And I am chained to his chariot wheel. I, Paul... I am a captive of Jesus Christ. And not only am I a captive of Jesus Christ, but I also have been made the incense that would go up in the triumph, the incense by which some believe the gospel and some do not when the gospel is proclaimed. So there are the powers of darkness chained to Christ's chariot. But Paul says, Look, look at the captives, and there you will see that I am there too. But there's a difference, isn't there? They are unwilling. I've been made willing. The joy of a new heart. Surrendered in faith to Jesus Christ makes me a willing captive of Jesus Christ. And now I share in his victory. It would be true of no Roman triumph. That captives would share in the victory of the general. But you have been given a new heart. You are willing captives of Jesus Christ. And you now share in his triumph. It's a glorious thing to consider. One more thing. The cross is his triumph over the works of darkness. But there's a kind of staging principle. We know that Satan's still working in this world, don't we? Uh, Satan is defeated, he's bound, but still even though chained to his chariot, still he works havoc on a long chain. But Christ will come again, and we will gather before the throne with those who sing, if I may read from Revelation 5, these words. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God and they shall reign on earth. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might. "...forever and ever." And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. And there will be no place for principalities and powers, darkness or Satan in that day. For when we come to the end of the book of Revelation, we read in chapter 20, verse 7 and following, of the ultimate victory over Satan, which has already been won by Christ on his cross... And in Revelation 27 we read, And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they were tormented day and night forever and ever. We share already in that victory. So This text tells you you were dead. God has made you alive. He's forgiven you, believer, your sins. Unless there's someone here who hasn't trusted yet in Christ and you're lost. Put your trust in Christ that your sins might be forgiven. And he nailed the IOU that was against us to the cross. And he triumphed over every principality and power but you're going to hear that today and rejoice in it and go out on Monday and you're going to say it sure doesn't feel that way. But it's true. Regardless, you may not feel that way, but it's true. This is what the Bible teaches. So whatever comes, live in light of the victory of the cross. Whatever comes, Comes, let's live in light of the victory of his resurrection. Whatever happens, let us live in light of the victory of Christ's glorious return. And may our hearts be filled with song. O Lord, haste the day when the faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. God's people said, Amen. Amen.